Well, it's entirely appropriate for us to set aside time as we consider the cross today. It's good for our souls to hear the reality of our salvation. And can I say, uh, it is good to be here again. Uh, it's been, I think, three years since I've had the opportunity to, to share uh, during this service, and I'm always appreciative of uh, Pastor Reed and, and you all for inviting me. The danger that is associated with days like this, holy days on a calendar, much like Easter or Christmas, is that we come to acknowledge it on an annual basis, but sometimes we fail to appreciate the grandeur and the, um, the true reason and the extent of why these things took place. It's been said that familiarity breeds contempt. I know today that we would not look at the cross with familiarity, but with awe, as we consider the depth of the love of Jesus Christ. Our mission today is to visit the cross through the lens of those who were associated with the cross to see Jesus through the experience of those who will come in contact with the Messiah in his final hours. And the first person that we're introduced to is a man from Cyrene named Simon. We are introduced to him in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And really, we only have a few words in those three Gospels. But the Scriptures have a unique way of saying much in a few words. And so we want to take a few moments and glean into Simon's experience that day, that Good Friday in Jerusalem. Simon has a chance meeting with Jesus as he is on his way to the cross. Jesus is heading towards Golgotha. Tradition refers to the path that Jesus took from the heart of Jerusalem where he was beaten and scourged and mocked and spit upon to Golgotha as the Via Della Rosa or the way of sorrow. Jesus has suffered much to this point. In Mark's gospel, right before we are introduced to Simon, we read that Pilate had gathered with the crowds as an offer to set Jesus free. He offered to set Barabbas against Jesus. Pilate knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong, and so he was hoping that the crowds would choose as custom a criminal to be released, and he offered Jesus, and the crowds yelled in a violent scream, crucify him. They took Jesus to the Roman guards, where he was stripped. They pressed a crown of thorns upon his head. They took a scepter, and as Mark's gospel indicates, they kept beating him in the head. 
They mocked him by bowing down again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they scourged him with a whip. Practically speaking, Jesus was living within an inch of his own life. And at that point, they led him away to Golgotha, where he was to carry the cross beam of the cross, which weighed 30 to 40 pounds through the city to the Mount of the Skull. And it is on this way that the Roman legion was growing concerned that this man would likely not make it to the cross. And so they pressed a man from Cyrene into service who was a visitor in Jerusalem that day. A couple things to note about this man from Cyrene. Cyrene was a North African uh, area in present-day Libya, which is just west of Egypt. By foot, it would have been 1,100 miles for him to come from Cyrene to Jerusalem. It's very likely that Simon was a, uh, a Jew gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover. He would have made that pilgrimage maybe once or just a few times in his life. And here we have this man in the heart of the city celebrating a feast, hearing the noise of the crowds yelling a murderous accusation to crucify this man from Nazareth. It's within the backdrop of all of this that we find Simon in the crowds, going about his day. I'm sure he woke up that day not thinking at all that he would find himself in this place at this moment, at this time, compelled to do this thing for a man that he did not know. As Jesus was struggling to carry his cross, the soldiers grabbed Simon, and as the Gospels indicate, Luke indicates that Simon was seized, and Mark and Matthew indicate that he was pressed into service. This was not an act of his own volition. They seized him, and they pressed him into service. That phrase, pressed in the service, means to requisition. It was used in a military sense as soldiers would come into an area and, and take what that was required for what they needed. 1,100 miles away from home, being pressed into service to carry the cross of a man that he did not know. Little did Simon know that day that the cross he carried for Jesus truly was his own. Along the way, Simon would hear Jesus' comments to the women of Jerusalem. He would 
follow the soldiers and this beaten man to Golgotha where they would lay him on the cross and nail him to it. And if Simon stayed long enough that Good Friday, he would hear this man cry out for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. What is especially important for us to see is that Simon's experience that day while from his perspective was purely accidental, was life-changing and divinely appointed by God. Mark 15, 21 indicates a, a parenthetical statement as Mark, the gospel writer, is writing to largely a Roman audience. And he says, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. What's interesting is that all three synoptic gospel writers tell us his name. It seems something unusual in, in many places in the scriptures as just folks are mentioned as male or female. Here, Simon's name is included very specifically. And Mark indicates his children, Alexander and Rufus. Church history indicates that Alexander was martyred as a Christian missionary, and Rufus became a leader in the early house church of Rome. The Apostle Paul sends his greetings in Romans 16 to Rufus. And as Mark, the gospel writer, is writing his gospel to a Roman audience in Rome, he makes mention of the connection of where this man is from that is a part of the early church. A clear indication that this man's father carried the cross of Jesus Christ. Not much is said about Simon, but enough is gleaned from these passages to say that we have a life-changing account, an encounter with Jesus that was not expected the text points to the fact that this encounter, from his perspective, was accidental at best and likely an inconvenience to him. He's in Jerusalem for other reasons, doing other things, and he was seized and pressed in the service to carry the cross of a man that he did not know. You know what those days are like, right? When you have in your mind a day planned only to be interrupted by some other thing, an unannounced visitor, or something that hasn't come up, or that has come up that hasn't been scheduled, when you had your mind picturing exactly what was going to occur that day, and it all changes in an instant. That's often how the Lord works. 
changing plans, rearranging days, getting a hold of us when we least expect it. And yet God uses all of it for his glory and for our good. Simon had a day just like that when he was in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus died. And yet, it was on that day that he experienced a grace that he never felt before. It caused one scholar to note as they were commenting on this passage that Simon of Cyrene is an example of what he called accidental providence. From Simon's perspective, it was purely accidental. From God's perspective, it was providentially provided. God, through his divine interruption, changed Simon's life that day. Luke indicates that when Simon carried Jesus' cross, and we read this in Luke's gospel, in verse 26, when they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Luke indicates something of Simon's position. And it's easy to see why. Because in two other places in Luke's gospel, in Luke 9.23 and in Luke 14.27, Jesus told his disciples that they are to take up their own cross and follow him. Simon is the picture of what discipleship looks like, of what a follower of Jesus looks like, to pick up the cross and follow him. So as we consider this man who had his life divinely interrupted upon a maybe once-in-a-lifetime visit to Jerusalem where he came in contact with the Savior of the world, where God had interrupted all of his plans to show him a grace through the visible representation of the Son of God who laid down his life for the sins of the world. This man was changed. It's interesting to note that if Simon stayed long enough in Jerusalem, that in Acts chapter 2, some over 40 days later, as the Holy Spirit fell upon the, the disciples that were gathered in the upper room, and Peter preached the sermon that he preached on the day of Pentecost, that in Acts chapter 2 it says that there were many from the world that were gathered in Jerusalem because it was the feast of Pentecost. And it notes in Acts chapter 2 that there were people from Libya of Cyrene. They're hearing that sermon. And if Simon was in Jerusalem long enough, seeing what he saw, and now hearing the words that he heard from Peter as he clearly explained that Jesus is the Messiah, we see at the end of Acts chapter 2 
that many believed and were baptized that day. And Simon went home as a follower and shared his faith with his family. And his children became a core foundational piece of the early church. Today, may we see the grace of God as we consider the one who died on the cross for our sins. Like Simon, pick up our own cross and follow him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these moments that we have in your word. We're grateful not just for the story of what is contained in Scripture, but the reality of your Son who came to take our place. We thank you, Jesus, that you were faithful to the very end to, the do, to do the will of your Father, to die for our sins. And as we Consider this man from Cyrene. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be a people who follow you by picking up our cross. And, Father, that you would continue to build into our hearts and in our lives Christ-likeness. We celebrate you this Good Friday. And we're grateful for the grace that you have shown us. For it's in your name and for your glory that we ask all these things. Amen. If you would please turn your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke, the 23rd chapter. I'll be reading verses 27 through 33. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open. I will be dealing with this text quite a bit. And I would remind you as we read it that this is the Word of God. Luke, the 23rd chapter, starting at verse 27. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being, led, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Let's pray. 
Precious Father, only a Christian can appreciate the irony of this most sacred holy day. We call it Good Friday, yet it's a day in which we reflect upon and remember the tears, the pain, the torture, the suffering, and, and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we call it good. It is good news. Christ has died for us. Lord, I pray as we take the next uh, few minutes today set aside to contemplate the, the death of Christ that we could go away realizing why we call it Good Friday. I pray. Amen. We've all watched in horror the devastation caused by the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces. We've seen the terrible toll it has particularly had on wives and children. As the men stay behind to fight, the women have gathered up some meager supplies, grabbed their kids, and fled for safety. We can only imagine how much more difficult it is to make a run for the border with babies and infants in tow. Then are those moms and babies who have stayed in hiding in air raid shelters. And tragically, the moms and children who have died. War is hell, especially on moms and kids. It reminds us of our Lord's words here on the Via Della Rosa. Look at verse 29. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the womb that never bore, and the breast that never nursed. Here's a reversal of the normal Jewish view that blessing comes from a fruitful womb. In fact, if you want to keep your hand here and look at Luke 11, we see this in verse 27. Luke 11:27. 27. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Children are a blessing. But look again at verse 29. For behold, the days are coming. Here we see Jesus as prophet. In fact, he was the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy of the prophet uh, greater than he. Turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to whom you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed among the people. Here in Luke 23, Jesus fulfills his office of prophet. He's there as the high priest making the 
eternal sacrifice. He's king, as it's proclaimed on his cross, king of the Jews. But he was also the prophet, prophet, priest, and king. There was a severe warning attached to those who would reject the prophet. Public executions always draw crowds. That's why they are public. One involving someone as controversial as Jesus would certainly attract attention. Add to this fact that Jerusalem was crowded with pilgrims. It is not surprising to believe that, as we read in verse 27, a large crowd of people were following him to Calvary. In the crowd was a group of women who wept openly and lamented as they sympathized with Jesus and and perhaps contemplated the terrible spiritual condition of their nation. These are not Galileans who would come to the city for Passover, but they're locals. Jesus calls them in verse 28, Luke 23, 28, daughters of Jerusalem. There are several theories concerning who these women are. Were they professional mourners that the Jews often employed? Were they among the crowd that had just recently cried out, crucify him? Had they been among the singers of Hosanna just a few days ago? Well, I think Luke portrays them in a sympathetic light. There is no reason to doubt their sincerity. Again, verse 27 says, And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. I think it was sincere. It's important to notice that in the Gospels, no woman was ever an enemy of Jesus. Nor was Jesus ever an enemy of women. His example, his teachings, and most of all, the redemption he offered have done much to dignify and elevate women. Jesus is showing them compassion. We would not have blamed him if he had chosen to ignore them. He had his own pain to deal with. Yet, he saw their tears, he heard their cries, he acknowledges their sorrow, and in compassion, he warns them, he cares about them. His suffering didn't blind him to the suffering of others. A lesson to us, perhaps. Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, reminds us that um, the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus himself tells us about his own heart is in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls, gentle and humble or lowly in heart. 
Of all the words and ways Jesus could have used to make his heart known, he chose gentle and lowly. The author of the book, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, makes us chuckle when he writes, if Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line of the about me drop down would read, gentle and lowly in heart. We see it here as he addresses these daughters of Jerusalem. Throughout this terrible injustice that we call Passion Week, Jesus' love's, uh, Jesus love for others shines out. It appeared in the, the garden when he performed what I like to call his last living miracle. Of course, this is not the miracle he performed when he rose from the dead, but his last miracle, if you will, of his, of his life was to heal the servant's ear, the one who had come to arrest him. Jesus heals him. That is his last miracle, healing of this one who came to falsely accuse and falsely try him. We saw it when he told Peter that although Peter would betray him, Jesus was praying for Peter. He was praying for Peter's faith and that he would be used for a greater good. It would surface again on the cross when he prayed for his executioners. Look at uh, X, or I'm sorry, Luke 23, 34. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We, saw, we see it, we will see it in his response to the criminals that were crucified beside him. Today, he said, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Look at verse 30, Luke 23, 30. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Christ here is quoting the scripture. He's quoting the prophets, Isaiah and Hosea, who spoke of a coming time when people with any sense at all will be so afraid of God's judgment on the wickedness of their world that they would wish that they could hide in a hole in the ground and wish that they had never born children. Hosea's prophecy was realized when the Assyrian armies overran the northern kingdom of Israel in the, in the years leading up to 722 B.C. In a similar way, Jesus prophesies that Jerusalem will be destroyed with cruelty and violence. Some of those that he was speaking to would be alive to see it, and most certainly their children. Of course, this is not the only scripture that Christ quoted during his suffering. On the cross, he quoted several Psalms. Look at Luke 23, 46. 
Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That, of course, is from Psalm 31, 5. He also quoted from Psalm 22. In his pain, he turned to Scripture. Perhaps another lesson for us. Undoubtedly, the Lord has in mind here the impending destruction of Jerusalem that would occur about 37 years from then. This is actually the third time where Jesus refers to this. Look at Luke 13, 34. Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem was headed for destruction. The temple would be made desolate. Look at Luke 19, 41. Luke 19, 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. True to the Lord's word, in 70 AD, the Roman army, led by the future emperor Titus, sacked Jerusalem after a five-month-long siege. The temple was destroyed. They tell me, even to this day, in Rome stands the Arch of Titus, which celebrates the Roman victory over Jerusalem. This, the Lord's prophecy came true. Look at verse 31. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is saying, if people will commit atrocities like you are now witnessing, imagine how things will burn when human culture has really grown dry. There may come a day when the unspeakable violation of little children could become regular news. But I think particularly Jesus was that green tree. What he's saying is, if God allows this to happen to his beloved son, how much worse will it be for them? 
for you, for us. The citizens need to wake up and realize that this rejection of the Messiah will bring judgment. Jesus appreciated their sympathy, but he thought their sympathy was misdirected. He felt sorry for them. We might paraphrase his words. If the Roman authorities do this to the one who is innocent, what will they do to you who are guilty? When the day of judgment arrives, can there be any escape for you? The question still rings true today. When the day of judgment arrives, will there be any escape for you? Of course, the answer to that question is Jesus himself. He is our escape. Because of what he is about to do on the cross, we will be able to stand in the day of judgment. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear standing guilty before a holy God. For the one who died for us will stand with us. The heavens declare the glory of God in the streets, the sinfulness of men especially this street, the Via Della Rosa. Don't weep for Christ on this Good Friday. Weep over your sins. Repent. Trust in Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, Father, most of us, all of us that are gathered here realize that this isn't the end of the story. This horrible day of darkness at noon is not the last we hear from Christ. We often talk about his last words. Well, yes, these were his last words on the cross, but they're not his last words. So as we've heard so often, yes, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. May that be the main lesson we take away from this. I pray. Amen. Uh, my name is Dan Kral. I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor at Ephrata Bible Fellowship Church. And uh, for this section, um, we are going to be looking at the centurion, the centurion soldier, and I'm going to be primarily reading out of the book of Matthew and Mark, and I'll try to let you know when I'm flipping back and forth. I'll be in Matthew uh, 27, specifically 54, and Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 15, verse 39. And it's interesting, uh, so far, and this has been such a rich time as we've gotten to reflect, we've looked at Simon the Cyrene, who's neutral. He's a neutral party. He's kind of grabbed and thrown into this story. And we've looked at the women of Jerusalem, and they're sympathetic to Jesus. And now we're going to look at a very unlikely character, uh, somebody who you would not expect to get any truth from, someone who you would not expect to contribute to this story 
in any meaningful way, the Roman centurion. But we're going to see uh, how he fits in, and more importantly, how his declaration, how his proclamation fits in. So I'm actually going to read um, uh, just simply what he said. We don't know what his name uh, is, um, but I'm just going to read what he said from the book of Matthew, and then I'm going to read the same thing from the book of Mark. And uh, it's going to be a little repetitive, but there's some nuance there. Um, I love the perspective of the, the biblical writers. Uh, they're not contradictory, they're complementary. And, and uh, we read them both uh, so that we can see the full picture, I think, as we are meant to. So uh, hear the word of the Lord from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, uh, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. And now from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the gift of your word. Lord, we don't take it for granted that we have time such as this to reflect, to pause, to slow the pace of our busy lives, our mind, our attention, our hearts that chase other things. Thoughts of how the weekend is going to go. No, Lord, we need to sit to reflect. Lord, I ask that in this text today that you would give us eyes to see who you are, to behold our crucified Savior, to see his finished work. Would we be doers of your word, not just hearers only? Oh Lord, open our eyes. May we behold wonderful things in your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, our, our character that we are looking at for this portion of our time is a centurion, and he does not have a name. His name is not as important as his declaration, as his profession. A centurion, I'm sure most of you know, is a Roman soldier, but not just a Roman soldier. He's one in leadership. He's over 100 men, called a sentry. That's how the, the, one of the smaller units, uh, how Rome organized themselves. And so being a centurion, he was most likely a career soldier, battle-hardened, a veteran. He was Roman, meaning he thought like a Roman, he acted like a Roman. He would have interpreted the events, the events around him like a Roman. And most likely, he probably felt similar to Pilate about all of the events taking place, meaning just like Pilate, he didn't understand why does this man need to die? He didn't understand why the Jews were after this man. But rather than get into a religious debate, what are the Romans' job? Just keep the peace. 
Just get, get, get through. Just make sure everybody stays in line. We don't want any word getting back to Rome that things are out of hand. And that's the job of a soldier. Many times. Don't think, don't debate. Follow orders. And so we can imagine that that was his heart. That was his motivation. I'm just trying to put myself in his position. This is his task. This is what he must do. But now we're going to see in the book of Matthew, that's where I'm going to start, Matthew chapter 27, that this battle-hardened soldier, this veteran, no stranger to death, no stranger to the suffering of others, we're going to see his heart softened. And perhaps his heart is even going to break. And let's, let's look at some of the events that might have led to that. What were some of the events that took place that may have led to this centurion making his profession of faith? If you look back with me in Matthew 27, uh, verse, verse 45, you'll see that this, this execution day was unlike any other. Verse 45 says, Verse 45 says this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now from the sixth hour is indicating noon, 12 o'clock. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, there was darkness over all the land. This is a supernatural darkness. In the middle of the day, when it's supposed to be the brightest, there is a darkness. Something is going on here that is different than maybe many of the hundreds of other executions this man has participated in. You'll look with me in verse 51 of chapter 27, that there was a mighty earthquake, that the earth shook, and the rocks splintered, and that the centurion is directly observing this earthquake in verse 54. He saw the earthquake and all that took place. I said earlier, one of his main jobs as a centurion, as a Roman, was to keep control, keep things in line, make sure this doesn't get out of hand. And now events are happening that he cannot control. He who is supposed to be supervising this is realizing he is not the sovereign one, that he is in need, that he's dependent on others. Now at this time, while the earth is shaking and the darkness is over the land, there are some other events that are happening that this centurion is unaware of. Uh, we see in verse 51 of Matthew 27 that the uh, curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The next verse, 52, tells us that interesting uh, account that the bodies of those who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out and appeared to many. Now, the centurion doesn't see any of that. He doesn't know any of that is going on. And if he had, he probably wouldn't have known what that meant, what the significance was of the temple curtain being rent in two. All he sees is the darkness before him, and all he sees is the ground under him shaking. But I actually don't think it's the events themselves that lead to his change of heart, that lead to the softening of this veteran soldier's disposition. It's actually Jesus himself. Now you think, as a centurion, as a leader, he was certainly present or at least aware 
of let's just look at first the physical agony and suffering that Jesus endured. How in verse 26 of chapter 27, how he was whipped and scourged, how his back was torn, how he was stripped from his clothing in an attempt to shame him. How a crown of twisted and sharp thorns were placed and forced down on his head. How he was spat upon, our Savior, and struck upon the head. Certainly, this centurion oversaw, or at least was a part of, the march to Golgotha. Making sure the crowds stayed back, making sure they could get through. What a chaotic scene. Could you imagine what that was like? Jesus has been beaten within an inch of his life already. And now somehow they need to get this man to the hill. That's the order. That's the mission. That's the job. And as we, we saw earlier, some in the crowd were sympathetic. Some want to be near to mourn and to cry. And some want to jeer and attack and spit and shame. And then others, like I imagine Simon of Cyrene, he just gets caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. I, I don't know. Maybe he was one or the other group. But this is the job of the centurion. He is to facilitate this, to get Jesus to that hill. And when they get him there, let's not let these details, we all know what happens. Let's let these details impact us. They crucify him. Probably not the centurion himself, but he oversaw it. They drove nails through him, keeping him to a piece of wood. Some of you who have been raised in the church have probably heard that your whole life. Don't let those details, the horror of that, escape you. This is incredible physical agony. Along with the physical agony is the emotional agony and suffering of Jesus. That the centurion being right there, he's at the foot of the cross, he's keeping watch over Jesus. This is a high-profile man for all he knows. So the centurion would witness the derision of the crowds toward Jesus, that they would go out of their way to wag their faces at Jesus. Everybody is getting their shot to say, shame on him. Look at him. Verse 41, 41 tells us the chief priests and the scribes, they are cruel down to the last. Their agenda has been to get to this day, and they are gloating in victory. Verse 44, even the robbers, even the thieves hanging on the cross, condemned to die in the same place as Jesus, they are next to him, deriding him, scorning him, mocking him, goading him. If you are the son of God, why will you not save us and yourself? What would it have been like to be there? To hear that, to see not only the physical horror, but the emotional horror that is taking place. And then to see Jesus, to see our Savior, to see his response, or should we say lack of response. 
that his only words directed towards others was to ask for their forgiveness, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine how that stood out to this centurion man? This man will then also hear our Lord cry out in verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he doesn't know that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. He doesn't know that that's part of uh, Scripture that is coming to Jesus' mind, that he is now crying out to the Father. He's certainly not aware of the spiritual agony and suffering that Jesus is undergoing as he experiences the full weight, the pouring out of the wrath of God. He doesn't know any of that. All he hears is Jesus crying out to his father. Finally, the centurion is going to be the witness to the final moments and the death of Jesus. Matthew 27, 50 says this. This is how Matthew records it. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark is going to say something very similarly, a little bit more succinctly as Mark likes to do. And he's going to say, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. There was a loud cry that both the synoptic gospels talk about. What was that cry? The Gospel John tells us in the book of John, chapter 19, verse 30, that the cry that Jesus uttered, that he stated was, it is finished. And he breathed his last. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Mark records this in, in chapter 15, Verse 39, that when the centurion, just picture this, who stood facing him, when he saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, what was it about that cry that stopped him dead in his tracks? Like I've said, certainly this is not the first crucifixion. There were probably hundreds perhaps thousands of crucifixions that this man had wit witnessed. And if, I, if you forgive me for being a little graphic, he probably knew and had heard the screams of despair, of pain, of so many who had already suffered on that cross. Why was this one different? Why was this death, this final cry, something that would bring a veteran soldier to the point of bewilderment, to question, to fear, and to awe? What struck him in the heart? I think because unlike Jesus' previous statement where he cries out to the Father, where are you, Father? Here Jesus sounds a victory cry. It is finished. In this moment of despair, victory. His mission is accomplished. His work is fulfilled. No wonder that was so unusual to the centurion. It still baffles the world today, the symbol of the cross. Such pain, such defeat, and yet victory. The victory of the cross. Uh, Matthew actually includes the soldiers who were with him, the, centur the centurion and the soldiers that were with him. Matthew describes them this as in awe. 
as in awe. Meaning they feared greatly. In, in other places this word is used, it's used in sense of awe and wonder and even worship and praise. What's included here? I think all three of them. I think they were especially afraid. They trembled. They knew something has happened that is unlike anything we have ever seen before. Here in verse 39 of the Gospel of Mark, this Gentile centurion makes the profession, makes the declaration that the entire book of Mark has been reinforcing and building to. If you look at Mark, you know, Mark is a writer that gets right to the point. Mark 1.1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No grand introduction, no building to say this is what the book is about. Mark gets right to the point. This is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark will build the story. Mark 8.27, the central question of the book is asked by Jesus. Who do you say that I am. Who do you say that I am? That's Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And then now here, towards the end of the book, the centurion brings the entire account of, of Mark full circle by his declaration, Jesus is the Son of God. And if you look at all the characters at the cross, all the religious leaders, all the disciples that should have been there, it's kind of unlikely to our human understanding that it was the centurion who made this declaration. He didn't have the history. He didn't have the theology. He didn't have the books of the law. He might have heard of Moses, but he didn't have any of that. He didn't have any of that awareness. And yet he comes to knowledge that has escaped the religious leaders. Those men who probably memorized the Torah as children who had their theology airtight, they, they knew, and yet they missed what was right in front of them. Those disciples who should have been at the foot of Jesus, they're far away, but the centurion is up close, and he can see. Now, as you read this account, do you wonder like I wonder, how did he know? Why did he see all of the same events that everybody else did, why does he make this profession and no one else does? How did he come to faith? How did he understand? Well, we must say it's the same way that Peter understood, and it's the same way that any of us come to faith, that come to greater understanding. Matthew 8.16 says it for us. When Jesus asks his disciples that famous question, who do you say I am? This is what the crowds say, who do you say I, I am? Simon Peter replied, listen to these words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Same declaration as the centurion. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So brothers and sisters, as, as he beheld Christ crucified, God opened the eyes of this soldier to see the truth of what was happening, to see the truth of him who was on that tree. And I love the poetry here. I love the story. The first person to see Jesus Christ for who he is after his death. Now, mind you, the resurrection hasn't happened yet. But the first person to see Jesus for who he is is a Gentile soldier. 
after his death. Now, the resurrection is still coming, right? But at that point, I don't think anybody was expecting that in this story. The first person to declare who Jesus is, who Jesus is, is a Gentile, a Roman, a leader of the soldiers, a centurion, someone who was seen as a sign of oppression, who was hated. If you could point to anything that said that God's kingdom hasn't come yet, it would be a Roman soldier. And yet he is the first. These words of truth from the mouth of a Gentile, they're a bit of a foreshadowing because if you just turn to the next chapter, Matthew 28, you're going to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died and now was raised. In his commission to his disciples, this is what he says. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Now, did you catch that in that commission? Make disciples of all nations, meaning all people. It means the Gentiles are now included. That includes the Romans. That includes the soldiers. That includes even those like the centurion. Just a short time later, 40 days later, about, uh, or about that much, when, G when Peter is giving his sermon at Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit fell, Peter declares the gospel and the crowd says, what must we do to be saved? This is what Peter tells them in Acts 2, verse 39. He says, repent and believe, each one of you, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And then this is 39. For the promise is for you and your children, and for who? And for all who are far off, whomever the Lord our God calls to himself. Brothers and sisters, as we look at the cross, the cross is good news for the outsider. The cross is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone the Lord our God calls to himself. As we look at the cross, we can say with this Gentile, with this Roman, with this centurion, surely, not this was the Son of God, surely this is the Son of God. How often do we miss this truth? How often do we get caught up in other things? You see, on that day, many did miss it. Many came to see a spectacle. They came to see an event, and they leave despairing. They leave not being able to make sense of all that had happened. But Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 47, the centurion praised God with his declaration. He praised God. With the eyes of faith, he saw Jesus. Do we see this, brothers and sisters? Do we live in light of this? Let this be what we build our lives upon. May this be what we build our churches and our ministries upon. That declaration that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But listen, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. May this day, this Good Friday, this day of unimaginable pain, 
unquenchable wrath, undeserved mercy, amazing love, it all is seen at the cross. May you and I, may we with the eyes of faith, may we see this man of sorrows, the penalty paid for all who will put their faith and trust in him, all who the Father will draw to himself. And may you, may I, may we be filled with awe and wonder that leads to true worship. Let's pray. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Heavenly Father, we pray that that would be our heart's prayer. May that be what resounds in every church on this Good Friday and every day, every Sunday. May it be the gospel that goes forth, foolishness in the eyes of the world, weakness in the eyes of the world. But it is the strength and wisdom of God. May we not shy away, may we not diminish, but may we hold the cross high. And say, if you want to see what the love of God looks like, look to the cross. You want to see what God's anger towards sin looks like, look to the cross. And Lord, may our heart be just as that centurion when he beholds his Savior. Truly, this is the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for that special number this afternoon. So beautiful, and it's great to be with you. Uh, It's been a number of years since I last preached at this special Good Friday service, but I just love the idea of setting aside some some real substantive time in God's Word to, to reflect on what this day signifies, especially to us as Christians, especially to us that have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. You know, I've been asked many times uh, in my ministry why the Friday before Easter is referred to as Good Friday. (laughs) Why would it be called good? It's about death, they say. Isn't death bad? Well, I absolutely love these kinds of questions because it allows me the opportunity to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who ask. And this is what Peter said, by the way, that we're all to be able to do, right? In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 15, he says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. You know, Colossians 1.27 reminds us where our, our hope is, where our hope is as those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. It's in the risen Christ. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we acknowledge this day as good because Jesus fulfilled the mission given to him by the Father to, to come to this sin-tainted earth and to live a perfect life which qualified him then to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners. Jesus' death was good because he had to die this cruel death on the cross of Calvary to propitiate the Father's wrath against sin and to provide redemption for all those who would one day repent of their sin and trust in in Jesus Christ for salvation. Jesus' death was, was good because it was necessary to redeem the lost. And aren't you glad, aren't you grateful for the sacrificial death of Jesus? That's why we're here today. 
right? We're here to celebrate what Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, has done on our behalf. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 helps us when it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So usually we just anchor there, right? Usually we just jump right to the cross. But it really is amazing to consider all that Jesus went through in the lead up to his death. Our Savior and Lord was humiliated. He was treated like a crazy heretic, like a common criminal. He was berated. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was abused. He was also mocked repeatedly by sinful people. There's certainly much that we could consider with all of that, but my mission today is to concentrate our attention on the mockers, those who mocked Jesus prior to his crucifixion. You know, it's really quite amazing if you think about it that sinful, hopeless people mocked and jeered the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God. But that's exactly what happened in the lead-up to his death. But you know, none of this took Jesus by surprise. Because according to the Gospel accounts, Jesus had predicted that he would be mocked. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19 says, As Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the road he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify, but then on the third day he'll be raised up. This is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these mockings of Jesus, we find in the gospel accounts that they took place in three stages. And so I want to show you these as we begin today. So if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. And I'm just going to try to keep us there in Mark. There will be a number of passages of scripture that we consider today. But uh, I'm going to try to keep us anchored there in Mark chapter 14. And I want to look at the first stage of mocking, which was after Jesus' condemnation by the Sanhedrin. So if you'd look with me at Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 53. Verse 53 says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the Uh, Elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officials and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any, but many were giving false testimony against him. But their testimony was not consistent. So some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We have heard him say that I will destroy the temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. 
the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent, and he did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. We notice here in verse 65 that they spit upon Jesus. They blindfolded him. They, they beat him. <laughs> All because he told them just exactly who he was and exactly what he was going to do. Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 65 says it this way. The, the men who were holding Jesus in custody began mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and repeatedly asked him, saying, Prophesy, who's the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him and blaspheming. So the first stage that we see of the mocking of Jesus prior to his crucifixion was right after Jesus' condemnation by the Sanhedrin. The second stage of mocking was after his condemnation by Pontius Pilate. So turn over to chapter 15 and begin to look at me, with me at verse 16. Verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort, and they dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And so ju just, just prior to this, we find that Pilate appeases the crowd. He lets Barabbas go instead of Jesus, and then he turns Jesus over to these Roman soldiers who flogged him and dressed him up in purple clothing to symbolize a royal gown, and then... They put a crown of thorns on his head, symbolizing a royal crown, and then they mocked him, and they said, Hail, the king of the Jews! And then, it says, they heartlessly led him out to the crucifixion site. Luke 23, and verse 11, also mentions that at that time, Herod himself joined in the mocking. And so the first stage of mocking was after Jesus' condemnation by the Sanhedrin. The second stage of mocking was after his condemnation by Pontius Pilate. And then the third stage of mocking we'll see here is that while Jesus is on the cross, he's on the cross. So drop down, if you would, to Mark chapter 15 and verse 29. Verse 29 says those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! Who are you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? 
save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also and, all, and also with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So they're all getting into the act. I mean, they're all getting into the act. They're all mocking Jesus, the God-man who came from the glories of heaven down to the earth to condescend to live a perfect life, to qualify to go to the cross, to die in the place of sinners like you and me. Last Sunday, I gave the invocation at a formal change of command ceremony out at the Fort Indian Town Gap. And it was really quite interesting. It was quite an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. I uh, really enjoyed my time there with the soldiers, the enlisted men, and also the officers who were there. And so I was one of the leadoff guys. And, and, uh, but prior to my prayer, they were talking about this company that had just returned from Kuwait. And they were in Kuwait for a year, defending our country, making preparations, flying these missions into Iraq, putting themselves in harm's way for us. And there was a report prior to my prayer that said that they had fulfilled their mission. Everyone came home safely and everything went according to plan. When we think about Jesus, he was sent by the Father to the earth on a mission. And we see that the mission was accomplished. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He propitiated himself on the cross. He propitiated the, the Father's anger and wrath against sin. He died willingly in the place of sinners. He did what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so I'd like for us just to consider the purpose for Christ's condescension. Because Jesus indeed condescended. You know what I mean by that, right? He condescended. I mean, he came from the glories of heaven. He's the sinless son of God. And he came down and he lived among sinners like us. He never had a sinful thought. He never had a sinful action. He was the only one who was living on the earth at the time that had not sinned. His mom was a sinner. His dad was a sinner. All of his brothers and sisters were sinners. He was a carpenter. Everybody he worked for was a sinner. The only, wasn't, the only one that wasn't a sinner was Jesus. He condescended. The sinless son of God. We're amazed by what he did, right? We're amazed by his grace. We're amazed by his service. And we're amazed by his humility. So first, he condescended to show us his grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. There's only one way of salvation. It's by grace 
through faith in Jesus Christ. It's all of grace. It's all of God's grace. Without his grace, none of us would turn to Christ. It's all of his grace. He condescended to show us his grace. Second, he he condescended to show us his service. We all know Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's referring to all who would place their faith and trust in Christ. Jesus, who was God, God in the flesh, God incarnate, comes down from the glories of heaven to the earth to serve sinners. Not to be served. He deserved the service of sinners. And yet he came to serve us. And then third, he condescended to show us his humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a reminder that not only will all of those who mocked Jesus one day stand before him, but every single person will stand before him and acknowledge him as Lord. Every one of these mockers will stand before Jesus as their judge. But we as the redeemed saints of God, we will stand before Jesus as our Lord. Oh, there'll be a review of our life, both good and bad. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36 that that we too will give an account for every careless word that we speak. You see, what people speak reveals what's in their heart, right? Jesus also said, "For for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification. According to the need of the moment, so it will give grace to those who hear. Let me just remind us that that this world's not our home. We're we're aliens and strangers here. We're, We're citizens of heaven. Jesus said in John 15, verse 18 through 21, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they followed my word, they will follow yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. In other words... I take that to mean the more we live like Christ, 
the more we will be treated like Christ. And I count that a privilege. I count that a privilege, don't you? I love the hymn that was written by Philip Bliss back in the 1800s. It was originally named Man of Sorrows, what a name, but was later changed to be named Hallelujah, what a savior. And it goes like this. Man of Sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Say it with me. Hallelujah. What a savior. This is the savior that we serve. The one who came and willingly went to the cross to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He died in our place to purchase us from the slave market of sin to redeem us and to satisfy the Father's wrath against sin. This is our Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. Let's pray. Our Father, oh, as we're reminded of who you are and what you have done and what you have accomplished, we're, we, get, we, we sort of get agitated and irritated at at, at how you were treated. People that should be falling at your feet are mocking you, spitting on you, and beating you. And you endured it all because you were on a mission. And Lord, we thank you that your mission was complete. And not only did you go to the cross and die in the place of sinners, but you were resurrected on the third day. And oh, are we looking forward to celebrate that on Sunday morning. We thank you for who you are and what you have accomplished on our behalf. And it's in the name of our Savior, our glorious, wondrous Savior, I pray. Amen. Hey, are you into reuse it shops? Reuse it shops? I know they're big uh, in this area, and boy, they are in our area too. Uh, in fact, we have one that's uh, the whole, whole shopping center is uh, just about the whole thing. Well, there's a pizza thing in there, but the rest of it's all uh, the reuse it stuff. And uh, I, I never really find anything in there for me to wear, um, unless it's a tie. Uh, but Bonnie gets stuff for the family and, uh, and gadgets and trinkets and stuff like that. And, and I was surprised to learn that there's about 25,000 uh, reuse it shops in the United States, and that uh, we spend $160 billion a year um, at these places. I, I have a sermon that I'm preaching right now from Hebrews 12, running the race even in tough times, and I talk about the New York City um, Marathon and um, how that the runners start off wearing hoodies and sweaters and mufflers and uh, gloves, and, but then they get warmed up and they start to discard that stuff along the road. And uh, it takes 200 volunteers all day to collect the discarded clothing and 23, 23 trucks to haul it away 
and it all goes to goodwill. So it's, uh, it makes it, and that's probably good. In my travels to South Asia, I don't recall seeing these types of stores. That doesn't mean they're not there. It's just that I'm not, I'm not looking for them. But they must be because a lot of our clothes that we no longer use are sent to uh, third world countries. It's, it uh, creates some jobs and provides a source for affordable clothing. And, and I have seen uh, some of the people wearing stuff on their sweaters, that uh, sweatshirts, that would be an indicator that they bought it in the West. It used to be, according to one article, that we would purchase around 20 garments a year um, the average person now um, creates, or rather, purchases 68 garments a year. I don't remember the last time I purchased one garment, but uh, that's what they say. And um, it's estimated also that Americans throw away about 81 pounds of clothes a year. Uh, that's the weight of an 11-year-old child. Uh, tragically, in the U.S., 85% of our clothes end up in landfills or are burned. Double tragically, many high-end clothing merchants and brands burn the clothes they do not sell. It's part of their strategy to preserve their reputation of exclusivity. Well, I learned uh, that over 100,000 metric tons of unwanted clothes, much of which are new, is shipped to one city in northern India each year to be shredded. Uh, they sort the clothing by color, strip it of its buttons, zippers, anything else on there. Um, then they turn it back into yarn and, and they make blankets. So that's kind of cool. At least it's getting recycled. And, um, and we have a reusing or recycling of clothing in our story today. And uh, so I take you to John chapter 19. Uh, John chapter 19, so to speak, it's recycled, I guess you could say. And um, reading from the uh, English Standard Version, uh, John 19, verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. A couple notes from the uh, text here. All four gospels uh, record this event, uh, this particular event. Um, all four gospels, there's only 11 events that all four gospels have the crucifixion is one of them, but this particular event is mentioned in all four. Um, part of the crucifixion that is mentioned in all four is this. Mark and Luke say less about it. Uh, Matthew and John say more, and of course we're looking at the John passage. Secondly, verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified him, the, the act of crucifixion was not, um, com it was completed when they died, but the act of crucifying someone was putting them onto the cross. All right, once they got them onto the cross, um, they were, that person was considered crucified. And uh, there was really no way of them getting off the cross uh, at that point, but the, uh, the four guys were there just in case something happened. And according to Matthew's account, the guards then sat and watched him. Um, and uh, so all four gospels put this in the past tense. He's on the cross. He's crucified. And then we have the action about which we're addressing now. They, they took the garments, divided them into four parts. 
one part for each soldier, small detachment uh, for each cross, or perhaps for all three crosses, uh, would have been four soldiers, plus a centurion, unless he was one of the four. Uh, it just so happens that Jesus had four items of clothing, one for each, more of that uh, under the observations that we shall make. Then it mentions the robe, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, and so they agreed not to rip it, rather they cast lots to see who would get it. Uh, we also learned that this entire act was to fulfill the scriptures, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That comes from Psalm 22, verse 18. Three observations. One, casting of lots. Common thing used in scripture. Seventy times it appears in the Old Testament, seven times in the New Testament. It was used by priests to separate the scapegoat from the one being sacrificed. It was used to divide the promised land among the Israelites. Functions in the temple were identified by lots. Casting lots helped settle disputes, according to Proverbs. Sailors on Jonah's boat determined who was responsible for that terrible storm by casting lots. And the guilty party was determined by that, was identified. And when the apostles met after Jesus ascended to heaven, they determined who would replace Judas by casting lots. That's what they did, Acts 1.26. None of the biblical illustrations of casting lots have anything to do with games of chance or gambling. Uh, every time it is used, the Israelites depended on the Lord 100% to reveal to them his will. The lot is cast into the lap, according to Proverbs 16.33, but its very decision is from the Lord. Casting of lots was a good idea back then. It was something tangible that they could do to uh, determine God's will and seeing him work uh, in it. Um, there could have been other options. Uh, they, they could have used rock, paper, scissors. Uh, you know, why not? Um, could you have seen these rough, tough soldiers going one, two, three, and then throwing out hand motions, either rock, paper, or scissors? Um, and then one of them saying scissors always beats paper, and, and another but rock beats scissors. Uh, I suppose they could be. Incidentally, do you know that rock, paper, scissors has now become a sport? Uh, started in 2002, the Rock, Paper, Scissors Society set up standard rules for international play, and they conduct an international world championship, the finals of which some years ago were on Fox uh, Sports News uh, Place. From one of the websites, quote, everyone wants to be a professional athlete, but who wants to wake up early and go to the gym? Not to mention all that time you have to spend worrying about perfecting your diet to compete at the highest level. Rock, paper, scissors avoids all of this. If you think you have what it takes, now is the time to get ready to go pro, end quote. And by the looks of some of you, I'm thinking maybe this would be an okay sport for you to try, um, including me. Or what if when Joshua was dividing up the land among the 12 tribes to see who would get first dibs, he said, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 10. Um, that could have happened, but not what did. Or the disciples flipping a coin, uh, which would have had Caesar's uh, head on it, um, to determine whether or not uh, who was going to replace uh, Judas. Casting of lots, um, either with dice or drawing straws, was common in that day. The question is, should they be used today? 
I know of one religious denomination, not far from here, uh, that does this to discern their next pastor. They put a slip of paper in a hymn book, hand out the hymn books to all the men and the guys who get the hymn book, and the one who gets the hymn book with the slip of paper in it, he's it. Um, not sure if he has to quit his day job, but he becomes the lead pastor of the church. So when um, Pastor Reed is going to hang up his ministerial suspenders, and if you ever see ushers at the door handing out hymn books, I would recommend, gentlemen, going to the restroom for the rest of the time or uh, visiting the beautiful part of the building that you've created here unless you want to become pastor. I don't think that's, is that what you guys are going to do uh, to choose a pastor? Uh, probably not. I think you're safe. Are casting lots for today? The answer is no. Um, we don't need this to determine God's well, will, although God could use it, I suppose. We have the advantage of being able to go directly to God in Jesus' name via the Holy Spirit to know God's will. Someone suggested that casting lots nowadays, like the fleece idea, could be considered tempting the Lord, which we're cautioned not to do. Could he use it? Yeah, he could. Um, does he use it? Probably not. Second observation is the possessions of Jesus. Jesus must have had five articles of clothing or possessions since four soldiers divided them equally, and one, the robe was left for a final casting of lots. Typical articles of clothing were uh, sandals, a turban, a girdle, a cloak, and, and the tunic, the robe, or seamless vestment uh, reaching down to near the knees. People in Jesus' day, as in people in most of the world, uh, do not have a closet full of clothing. Uh, in fact, most of them don't even have a closet. Um, despite this, according to one person, Jesus was not a poor, wretched beggar, um, he worked with his, uh, his earthly father, Joseph, in the, the family carpentry business and continued that work as he grew older. His profession would equate today with somebody who was a building contractor, and, and therefore he, he would have been fairly well off financially, at least uh, for the start. Jesus would have also kept all the laws of health perfectly and therefore would have bathed himself and kept himself clean his clothing would have been the best of quality that they could afford. Um, not totally sure about that at this point in his life, but uh, especially from one who had no place to lay his head uh, to sleep. So maybe his clothes were wearing out. But the robe might have been an expensive one. Um, not sure if the robe the soldiers are gambling over is the one that Jesus owned, or a robe that Herod and his henchmen put on Jesus as they mocked him, from Luke 23, 11, and Herod was the soldiers treated him with contempt, mocking him, then arrayed him in splendid clothing, a gorgeous robe, he sent him back to Pilate. So I'm not sure, did he have that on or did he have his other one on? According to many church legends, the robe ended up in various parts of the world. One legend has the mother of Constantine the Great discovering the seamless robe in the Holy Land in 327 AD, along with several other relics, including the cross. Uh, the robe ended up in the city of Tyre. Uh, the relic is normally kept folded and kept in a reliquary query, um, or a shrine. Another legend has Empress Irene making a gift of the seamless robe to Charlemagne in about the year 800. In 1793, fearing that the robe would be desecrated in the French Revolution, a parish priest 
uh, from the church of Benedictines, cut the robe into four pieces, hid them in, in separate places. Um, only four pieces remain, and apparently one is hidden by a piece of art that's in a reuse-it shop in Lebanon. Um, so, okay, that's not true, but uh, they're, they're hidden, or they were hidden. And the Eastern Orthodox Church feels that they had it um, in Georgia, not our state, but the country, given by a Jewish rabbi who bought it off the soldiers and sold it. Uh, it ended up going to a czar in Russia. The robe was cut into two with the pieces going to St. Petersburg and were placed in two cathedrals. Quite frankly, uh, if all the pieces of the robe were sewn together, uh, we'd have a circus tent. Um, and I don't quite think that's uh, what he was wearing. The third observation uh, and final, the soldiers were preoccupied with what they could get. Uh, we shouldn't be too hard on them. Uh, this was not an uncaring act. It may have looked that way, but it wasn't. For the guards, this was just part of their day and pay. Um, the man under their charge was a condemned criminal, already as good as dead. The dividing of the man's possessions was another trivial part of another trivial day, customary for the soldiers to do this, and um, they got to keep the personal effects of the person who was being crucified, divided up equally among them, and, and it became their property. What's so amazing is that these guys were standing or sitting beside the absolutely greatest event history has ever known, and they didn't know it. Uh, right over their heads. In fact, they slept through it, so to speak. More specifically, they gambled it right away. This is unthinkable, yet all too common in our society. This is Holy Week. Um, Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. In the Christian church, this week is the highlight of the year in many respects. Yet in our society, people are chasing the Easter Bunny. Uh, one of our larger cities in the state has, uh, has taken the word Easter uh, out of the name of that. I'm not sure what they're calling it, just bunny or whatever. Uh, and others hunting for colored eggs. Spring sales have the attention of the majority of humans instead of Jesus. But society's not here today. You are. And my concern with you and me is the truth that our attention is not always on Jesus. It should be. Um, sure, you're here today, you've taken off work, um, you've made an effort to be here, um, you're to be commended. I think you're at the right place. But how often during our daily lives do we pay attention to Jesus? Many churchgoers say a prayer, make a profession of faith, and figure they're a Christian. Uh, they go to church on Sundays, even some special days, like this afternoon. But the rest of their lives are crowded with everything and anything except for Jesus. Uh, instead of him being their best friend, the one to whom they have a continuing, growing relationship, they only talk to him at mealtimes or at church time. Someone noted they are a luxury car without an engine. And that is why we need to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13.5. So the four soldiers, um, kind of recycling Jesus' belongings, uh, uh, but these were tangible things. Some may have had blood stains on them. They had to, because he was bleeding quite profusely at that point. Others would, would eventually wear out. Well, they all would wear out. In fact, when, when it comes to clothing, according to the International Fair Claims Guide for Consumers Textiles Products, Assuming normal wear, you can expect most of your clothes to last somewhere between two and three years. 
Um, I'm wearing a tie that's older than that. In fact, I have some ties from back in the 70s. Um, they all have stains on them, but uh, I do have ties from way back then, and I have other clothes uh, that I can't wear anymore from way back then and several other closets in the house. But, um, but recycling Jesus, uh, the person, the character, the example, uh, is not only a good idea, it's what we're supposed to do. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, you've got to know him to be able to do that. You've got to be following him to be able to do that. The Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, and um, follow me is what Paul is actually saying there, just like I'm following Christ. Galatians 2.20, this is one you know for sure, I've been crucified with Christ, and no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 8.29, the first part of that verse says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's recycling Jesus in your life, so to speak. Being, he's like a mirror. Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5, 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Finally, Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've kind of recycled him in a way, but really he's living in you and through you. And I think you get the point. Uh, we are to recycle Jesus uh, into our lives, and people are to see that uh, we are his followers. Father, I thank you for my friends, for this time of worship, the excellent sermons that were presented, the great music, special music, as well as singing. Uh, we give you praise for all of that. It's a truly Good Friday. Yes, uh, sad in one sense, uh, because our, our Lord was crucified and died. But he did so for a reason, and a, a pretty great reason indeed, um, and that was to take the sins of the world upon him. When by faith we believe in him and receive him, he gives to us the gift of eternal life, and we are assured of spending eternity with him. What a wonderful thing. That makes it good. That makes it great. And, of course, we're looking forward to Sunday when we celebrate his resurrection. In the meantime, uh, before we go to see him, we are supposed to be an example of him. We are to be like Christ. We need to recycle him into our life, so to speak. Uh, we need to be the mirror image of him so that people can see Christ in us. And uh, this is not only a great way to witness, but it's also just part of the growth in the Christian life. May that be the effect that, that happens in our life uh, this day and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.